Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Charges over a $300 million Ponzi scheme. Bahamas comes out on top in regulation. And Tiffany puts a ring on a crypto punk. All this plus a deep dive into value investing in cryptocurrencies with key takeaways for anyone with a stake in digital assets right now. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined by Moritz Siebert. Let's get right into the latest price action. Bitcoin is pulling back from last week's rally. You can see this chart. Uh, the digital asset clocked its best month of 2022 in July, up 17 but that pales in comparison with Ether, which rose 57% last month, its best result since January of 2021. ETH has also flipped BTC in the options market for the first time in terms of value of open interest. The data you're seeing right now on your screen is from Deribit the world's largest crypto options exchange. Uh, Luke Stryers, whom we recently interviewed on Real Vision, told Coindesk that the ETH put-call ratio is at a 12-month low, which indicates bullish momentum. And CoinShares says July saw $474 million of inflows into digital asset investments. Uh, that's not only the highest amount this year, it's also a near total reversal of June's outflows. Last week's volume stood uh, at 1.3 billion, overall trading volume remaining low uh, compared to this week's average of 2.4 billion. Also wanted to talk about some of the top stories uh, that we're seeing here today. Uh, today's fall in prices comes as U.S. regulators increase their crackdown on crypto scams. The Securities and Exchange Commission filed charges on Monday against 11 people alleging that they created and promoted a fraudulent crypto-focused pyramid scheme. CNBC reports the scheme, called Forsage, raised more than $300 million from investors. The scam ran for two years. The SEC alleges the setup functioned like a standard pyramid scheme. Uh, crypto regulation has been in the spotlight following the recent collapse of multiple crypto firms. Research shop Solidus Labs has launched a global regu regulatory ranking that ranks the countries based on five categories, legal and regulatory framework, market surveillance, registration requirements, and anti-money laundering regimes. 42 nations were classified in this study. The Bahamas has come out on top in this first edition. The country has been praised for its comprehensive and progressive regulatory regime, coming in last in the ranking, China. Uh, final story of the day, luxury jewelry brand Tiffany has tied the knot with CryptoPunks. Tiffany will release 250 NFTs called NFTIF. Holders of CryptoPunk NFTs will be able to acquire one of the 250 NFTIFs 
for 30 ETH or roughly 50,000 US dollars using today's Ethereum price. The buyers will get a custom designed pendant and NFT that resembles the jewelry. Decrypt Media reports this has led to a surge in CryptoPunk sales. Data from NFT tracker CryptoSlam shows a price increase of over 240% in terms of the price of CryptoPunks in the last 24 hours. Talking of CryptoPunks, CryptoPunks is an example of a relatively successful project in the NFT space, but spotting the right opportunity in the crypto world remains a big challenge. Some investors like Kai Wu have employed the philosophy of value investing. Kai spoke with Moritz on how he adapted that age-old technique to investing in crypto. Let's take a look at the clip. Um, I found myself into crypto in early 2014. I was running kind of prop trading strategies in arbitrage, cross-exchange arbitrage, triangle trades across currencies, some market making. Um, did that for about six to nine months. And, you know, unfortunately, by the end, kind of while we were making, you know, very high risk adjusted returns, decided we were just still too early in the space. And simultaneously had an opportunity. Uh, some guy was leaving GMO and, um, you know, asked me if I wanted to help him co-found a hedge fund. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So he went back into the traditional finance world, um, launched this fund that was called Kaleidoscope Capital. We got to about $350 million in AUM um, from a bunch of institutional investors. In 2018, I left to start Sparkline Capital. And you know, really, the, the big vision for Sparkline is kind of, as you mentioned, um, trying to modernize value investing. Right? Value investing, of course, is the idea of you know, buying low, selling high, against a metric of intrinsic value. And it has this like very grand tradition over a hundred years, um, starting with Ben Graham um, in, the, in the 1930s. The big problem is that you know, the, the metrics that people use to measure value are still very much stuck in that, in that time period, right? This industrial era where like the biggest companies were like railroads and, and textile mills. Whereas today, value is what I call intangible, right? Facebook, Google, these companies are kind of at the top of the market. And what gives modern organizations moats are you know intangible uh, pillars of which there are four things that I've defined. So brand equity, human capital, network effects, and intellectual property. These are what I mean, gives maybe, them an advantage. Today. Maybe I can uh, maybe I can stop you there because this is going super quick, and I, I know you're yeah, excited yeah, yeah. about that. By the way, I didn't know that you started out as a kind of like you know market neutral exchange R type of trading business. You know, there's a lot of hedge fund managers out there obviously, as you know, that run exactly these strategies, like, you know, market making, location arbitrage, and digital assets, you know, basis trading, all these type of things. So you decided to not do that and go back to essentially where you came from, your upbringing, it like educational wise in terms of trading is value. And to translate what you've learned in equities or bonds and, you know, all these other traditional asset classes into the digital asset space. But before we go into how exactly you do that, I mean, what exactly is value in your definition? Because, you know, people, when you say value, it's kind of, oh yeah, Warren Buffett, he's a value investor. Yeah, okay, that's fine. There's many other value investors as well. They go about this in probably different spirits. Like, you know, for, for one person, it might just be a low PE ratio. You know, for another person, it's going to be, oh, how big is the mode around their business? And, you know, how far away are their competitors? You're looking at intangibles. So maybe you define value, what that means for you and what you're looking at, what's important for you when you think about value. And then we move this into the digital asset space yeah. and, and why this is different. For sure. And so you bring up um, Warren Buffett and I love telling this story, so I want to tell it now. 
Um, so one of the reasons why Buffett is so impressive is not just because of his track record, but because of his longevity and adaptability. Right? He started out as a direct disciple of Ben Graham, the father of value investing um, in the 50s, and his style was very different back then. It was what he called cigar butt investing, finding companies that are trading below net liquidation value, buying them, waiting for a realization, and then moving on. Right? And what happened was over the past few dec uh, the, the next few decades, he completely transformed the way he invested. Right? He, he moved from cigar butts to um, what he called like, you know, wonderful companies at reasonable prices, working with Charlie Munger. Um, and this was, again, like during the period um, where the American economy transformed from industrial into more consumer facing. Right? So his famous investments in Coca-Cola, right? where he focused very much on the brands the and the management quality of these com companies. Um, and then you fast forward further, like his biggest investment um, at Berkshire that's kind of carried his P&L the past 10 years has been Apple, right? I mean, Apple is what 20 plus percent of Berkshire's value and has amounted to, you know, close to 100% of his profits. And why did he buy Apple? It was because, as he said, it wasn't because of the, you know, the ecosystem or even the brand, which is very strong, but because of the network effects, right? Um, you know, iOS and, you know, just the kind of value of, of that ecosystem that Apple had created. So I like Warren Buffett's story because it, it very much mirrors the evolution of my thought process around value as well, which is, you know, starting with the most basic accounting principles around like, hey, if there's cash on the balance sheet, we want to unlock that, all the way up to adding brand, human capital, intellectual property, network effects. And see, so these are the kind of the four pillars. So we're staying within equities that to me encompass um, what is value today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. More, it's really interesting stuff about applying this age-old Graham Dodd method of investing to a totally new domain. What are your thoughts? What are your takeaways uh, on how Kai is doing this? Yeah, so I found this super interesting. So here's an investor with a traditional value background, you know, valuing equities and other assets. And apparently the challenge is how do you bring this thinking in this framework into a more technology-driven world? You know, this is not only crypto, but this is also tech stocks such as, you know, Facebook and Google and Apple. And how do you value them? And what Kai has told us, it's essentially about intangibles. He's defined four pillars of intangible value brand value, um, intellectual property, network effects, and human capital. And this is different type of data. There's no price to book, there's no price to sales. And this is what he's using to systematically, essentially come through the crypto space and find the tokens that have the most attractive valuation. So that I thought was really interesting. We're speaking to a lot of managers at XPAM, but he's one of a kind. He's really the only systematic value investor that I've come across and I found it fascinating to talk to him. It is really interesting. You mentioned this idea in traditional equities, relatively easy. Uh, you may have a different interpretation, but at least the data is standardized. You can look at sales. You can look at the ratio of sales to book, all very standard parameters, but obviously uh, an incredibly different space here in crypto. Okay, Moritz, with that said, how do you value cryptocurrencies? Well, it's, it's absolutely daunting and very challenging. I mean, there are so many tokens out there um, right now, I think more than 15,000, 16,000. So 
how do you actually go about this? You need a systematic framework. This is what Kai is doing. So I raised that point with him. Let's take a listen and see how he does it. But so you go you go about the digital asset space in a systematic way. Maybe we start with the types of data that you're looking at. I mean, what is of interest to you and where do you get that data from? And are we talking about equities or uh, crypto in this no, case? No, the cryptos. I think for the for the equities, you know, when you do it systematically, you can, you know, download all sorts of things uh, from a Bloomberg terminal, like, you know, price to sales and book to sales and all these type of things. Or, you know, you read the, the balance sheet and all the, you know, the corporate statesmen that they bring out. But, you know, a token, and there's like 14, 15, whatever, 16,000, you know, coins and tokens out there they rarely release a balance sheet, right? They rarely right. release something that is like a PE ratio or anything like that. And you wouldn't be able to find them on your Bloomberg terminal anyways. So you need to go about it in a different way for sure. You do it systematically, but maybe we start at the beginning, like, you know, what type of data are you looking at? And then more granularly, how do you analyze the data? Yeah, so just, you know, I wanna just clarify one thing with this, which is within equities, right? We, we don't look at accounting data. Um, to us, accounting data has kind of failed to evolve, you know, similar to traditional kind of price to book metrics, which you, you know, mentioned have some flaws over the past hundred years. And instead, what we do is we look for unstructured alternative data. So for example, to measure IP, one thing we'll look at is like patent abstracts. Um, we looked at, you know, in our last research paper, we looked at the past 200 years of patents, right? The first one being signed by George Washington in 1790 and said, hey, can we figure out what technologies are trending through time? And then, you know, by companies that are, you know, innovating in these trending technologies, whether it's blockchain today or the railroad um, or, or uh, automobile, you know, 100 years ago. And so that's how we kind of measure, you know, IP in equities. Now in crypto, um, taking this back here, um, you know, it's not about, um, there's no, no one does patents. Um, and so the big challenge when I tried to figure out, can we port the model from equities into cryptos um, was, you know, can we actually come up with data sets that will allow us to, to quantify in, intangible value in these four pillars within crypto? And the good news is that, in fact, you can do even better, right? So whereas patents were pretty good in equities, in crypto, it's open source. You can actually look at the source code in GitHub, um, look at what it looks like today, yesterday, all the way back through time, right? So what that allows you to do is to form metrics around intellectual property. Hey, how, how quickly is this team iterating on... Um, on their code base, say over rolling periods of time. Um, and then going to the human capital um, element, what you can do is look at, you know, how many and who are the contributors to each project? How many daily active or monthly active developers are working on this project? Is it a centralized team, decentralized? So that's, you know, how I kind of home in on those two pillars. The other really unique data set within crypto is obviously blockchains. I always talk about it as if like you could open up Visa's 10K every 12 to 14 seconds. And from there, you can see, you know, daily active users, um, transaction volume, all these sorts of like throughput and, um, and adoption metrics um, in real time. It's really quite impressive, say, compared to the traditional finance world where it's like every quarter with lag. Um, and then finally, social media, right? So like social media is, of course, important, not just in crypto, but also in traditional businesses like, you know, Nike and Apple, they care a lot about um, their brands um, online. But what makes it extra powerful within the crypto space is that these are kind of decentralized, um, digitally native organizations where like a lot of the coordination and the communication all occurs online in channels like Telegram or Reddit, Twitter, 
um, which is all information that's available to the public, and you can kind of pull down and scrape um, on your own. And from there, form uh, metrics around you know the um, what is the sort of, what is the brand that this company has? What is the perception in the market? Right. Or like how much reach does this have across um, you know the, the Twitter sphere? So we listened to the framework, Moritz. Uh, what do you think the risks are inherent in this framework, as Kai describes it? Yeah, no risk, no return, and vice versa. I mean, you know, value investing has the issue that something that looks attractive from a valuation perspective could be staying cheap for, or could be cheap for a reason, and could be staying cheap for a very long time. And not only that, sometimes you have these, you know, tokens in his case, go to zero. Um, you know, because it's a fraudulent scheme or because it just didn't work, the project didn't work because of a hack, whatever it is. So clearly only looking at these metrics and finding the cheapest things is not free of risk. So I found it fascinating or I found it very solid in the way that he does it, like systematically he ranks them, he puts them into categories, he makes sure that he stays diversified in his approach. He's not putting all the risk like concentrated into one sector of the market. And this is how he goes about doing that. He completely expects um, that at some point an accident will happen, but it's only going to be at a smaller part of his portfolio, hopefully, and it's not going to take the entire thing uh, for a bath. Well said and and elegantly framed, Moritz. So, so now that we've established these metrics, how do you go about comparing them? Well, I asked Kai which of the metrics are the real game changers here in the game that he's playing and, um, you know, what he does to pick the right coins and tokens. So let's see what he says. Let's just say we're looking at Polkadot and Solana, right? Okay. Both are little ones. Um, I think you've just explained to us you're looking at, you know, developer activity on GitHub. Um, you're looking at on-chain data, uh, whatever type you're with maybe transactions or, you know, notional value of throughput, whatever you're looking at there. You're looking at social media. So for instance, Twitter or LinkedIn, what's happening there. So off the top of your head, I'm not sure if you have a Solana or a Polkadot position, but how do you now compare Solana to Polkadot when you work through your four pillars? And, uh, and maybe if you do know, how do they rank in your value framework right now? Yeah, so we don't um, hold uh, either of those tokens, and you know we'll get into kind of what is the investment universe of um, the strategy, you know, a, a little bit later. Um, so you know, I can't speak to specifics, but you know, the, the framework is, is straightforward. So we are you know assessing the um, intangible value on the four pillars um, for each of the different L1s, and you know, it will look at to say, hey, which one has say more developers, um, which one has more transactions. Um, which one has more followers, but it's not as simple as that because we're not looking for like absolute numbers, right? Because then that'll just give you the biggest one because we're value investors. So what we care about is how much am I paying for what I get, right? So for each dollar I put in, how many, you know, engineers am I buying, right? How many followers am I buying? How many users am I getting? And so it's very much the ratio of, you know, market cap to traction, however defined. So in, in the case of crypto, so in the case of equities, it would be like, you know, trailing earnings or book value would be a traditional def definition. And we're, we're trying to expand that to include all these other things. So you think about it, like it's really no different. I mean, these are early stage technology companies, right? That's, that's what they are. And so you want to approach this market the same way a VC would, which would be to say, right. hey, you know, I'm, this project doesn't have a ton of revenue yet, um, doesn't have a ton of earnings. But like, you know, what I, but what I do know is that if they have a strong team, if they have an active developer community, if they have, you know, traction amongst users and user growth, that's a good thing, 
And I want to find, you know, projects with those attributes um, where I'm not overpaying for that. I think what you're saying is, you know, for instance, in, in the case of Ethereum, Ethereum has the largest developer community. I'm not sure. I guess they do have the largest developer community out there. Um, so if you were just looking at, you know, the number of developers or the number of like code deployment on GitHub and, you know, these type of things, then, you know, Ethereum would always be number one and it'd always be long Ethereum. That's not what you want. So you normalize this in a way by dividing it through uh, by, you know, float market cap or fully diluted market cap. I don't know, but, you know, some kind of like market cap valuation in order to have a level playing field for Solana and Avalanche and Ethereum and all those layer ones, right? And then you do this for all these pillows, you then rank it, and that gives you your top selections, right? Exactly. And in layman's terms, that, okay, cool. Now, is there any, like out of the, how many, you know, thousands of tokens and coins that we have today, are there any that you would exclude um, before you even start that exercise? Or do you say, no, everything, everything that's a crypto, everything that's a token, everything that's a digital asset, everything is my universe. I'm not pre-selecting anything. I, I just analyze them all. Yep. Is, is this how you go so, about it? Or yeah, so one, one, of my, one of my views in, in the asset class is that you know, I'm bullish on blockchain technology and crypto as a platform. But, you know, we don't really know, um, we have to be humble. We, have, we don't really know what is the killer app. Keep an open mind, right? And so, you know, you think back to the evolution of the ecosystem, right? Like I was doing this in 2014. There, you know, it was just a totally different world back then. Since then, we've seen the rise of Ethereum, um, DeFi, NFTs, and who knows next year what will be the, the newest innovation. And so what we want to do is just kind of be willing to, you know, not impose our views top down and say, hey, I'm only going to focus on blockchain gaming because that's my thesis. We want to say instead, let's go where, where where there's traction. So if we see developers, you know, leave Ethereum to go into Solana, that's an interesting data point. If we see, you know, a, a, a totally new use case emerge, let's say like real estate, um, and you know, users start to move into that um, that that segment, we'll kind of follow them. Again, all provided that the market caps aren't already pricing that in, right? So if there's a new um, token that you know people starting to get huge adoption, but the the market's overhyped it and it's really expensive, we're not going to do that. But the whole idea here is let's follow the users, let's follow the developers, you know, through the ecosystem over the next decade and kind of be very, you know, agile in a space that's ultra fast moving and, um, you know, imposing top down views, like saying, hey, we're a, you know, if we're an Ethereum based, like, um, fund that only focuses on, you know, metaverse stuff, right? I think that would be, I mean, boxing yourselves in too much, um, you know, in, in, a, in a market that's, you know, in its current phase. Listening to Kymorts, this sounds extremely involved, systematic, complex. How do you break it down? I agree with you, Ash. I think it runs a completely a very sophisticated investment process there. And I think to really do this DIY at home, do it yourself, you'd have to have a good understanding of value in the first place and the intangibles as he defined them. But you also need to have a good tech understanding because what he does is technologically involved like he's looking at on-chain data he's systematically doing that programmatically doing that he's looking at social media feeds so what's going on on twitter what's going on on linkedin what's going on on github i mean you know the number of developers there all these type of things so this is just nothing that i could just pull off uh here on my on my desk today um and, and do this for myself as i've said before i think he's one of a kind he's the first trader slash investor doing in that type of way 
And I know in the like preparatory discussion that I had with him, it took him a lot of time to actually get to the point where he could execute it in the way that he's doing it now. So you just need to be able to understand the Graham Dodd model uh, and also read code simultaneously. I think so. <laughs> so if you've done your research uh, and you have a strong conviction, it's tempting to focus on the biggest potential winners. Well, that is always a risk. And uh, Kay had a cautionary tale to tell us there. So let's listen in. So let's get to the next level. So say there's like 15,000 assets out there. I don't know how many exactly there are, but something like that, right? You could now rank them all and, you know, one asset would be the winner. Well, there's like, you know, maybe maybe some would have the exact same score, but there's going to be some that rank very highly and there's going to be, you know, the back end, you have quite a few that will be, you know, the, the poor docs and you wouldn't be selecting them. You could actually create a portfolio which gives very little weight or no weight to those, you know, assets that rank very poorly and a lot of weight to those assets that rank richly or, or you know, um, good on value. But how do you now actually form the portfolio? You know, yeah. do you form, do you go by, you know, percentiles and say, I want to be long 15% or 20% of the market? Or do you go like, I want to be long the top five or the best five in each, let's call it sectors, metaverse, web three, gaming, exchange tokens, layer ones, layer twos, you know, if, if that's your sector classification. There's no standard of that yet, by the way. I think that the market is developing these, you know, categorizations right now as we speak. Everybody still has slightly different ones. So how do you actually put the portfolio together and, and, and how many assets will end up in your book at the end of the day when you're done with your ranking? Right. So the first thing is we don't do any kind of sector neutralization or sector constraints. Mm -hmm. And it goes to the point I was making before, which is this is an evolving space. And as you point out, even then, the definitions currently are very subjective. And so we don't want to say, hey, we have you know 20% in metaverse. And that you know may grow or shrink over time, and then kind of be, be kind of held to that. So we want to go bottoms up and say we'll look at everyone equal and kind of go where there is value. It might, if it turns out that metaverse is a big thing in the industry, then you know a greater share of the pie will become metaverse over time. Um, but that will be kind of where the fundamental value is, and we feel comfortable doing that. So what we do is we take everything on an equal playing field, regardless of sector, and kind of rank them, as you point out, and take the top fifteen percent. That's one five, right? And so. Why 15%? Um, you know, it's a little bit arbitrary, but the idea is if you, you know, hold too many things, then you're diluting your alpha. And by the way, there's a lot of operational and custody complexity with holding, you know, tons of different tokens. So like it ends up being a bit of a cost to do that, increase a lot of friction. If you go too narrow, let's imagine you hold, you know, just a few tokens, or if you're like um, not equal weighting like we do, but you say, I'm going to put, you know, hold 10 things, but put 90% into one thing. You run into this problem, which is that you know crypto is a you know frontier market, and it's one in which like there is massive existential risk. So take for example Luna, right, which was in the news recently. And there are there are a lot of you know very highly sophisticated investors who put a lot of money in Luna and lost it. A forty billion dollar market cap, you know, top ten um, you know crypto going to zero in a week. I mean that kind of stuff can happen. And so for us, we're trying to again take this idea of humility and saying we don't know, we can't predict the future, so let's use diversification. Right, and then the the second point, I guess, the you know, kind of the converse of that would be like the key here is to like not miss winners. You think, imagine you're an investor in the '90s and you're trying to like make a bet on the internet, and you're like, you know, I think that the internet's going to become a big thing, but you only put all your money to one stock, like Webvan. Right, you'd be very disappointed because you call you made the right macro call, but you made no money. And so for us, like the idea is like we're trying to balance that that risk of you know being 
um, not diversified enough with like, you know, the friction dilution of too much. So 15% is kind of the number that we settled upon that gives us that, that nice balance. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mort, so lots of information here from Kai today on this general theme of value investing and how it applies to crypto. Final thoughts, Moritz, key takeaways uh, that you would like to leave our viewers with from this conversation. Yeah, so what uh, certainly a key takeaway for me was listening to Kai is that he systematically and on purpose uh, develops and builds up exposure to what he calls the tail of the distribution. So what he means by that is the smaller cap type of tokens. And those are names that even I, and maybe not you, Ash, as well, we're in the space, but we haven't heard of them. It's kind of like, you know, something that sits at number 100 or number 150 of the cap table. I wouldn't even know what that is, but his algorithm finds it. So that gives exposure to just a different part of the return spectrum. It's not just Bitcoin and Ethereum and Solana and Avalanche and Polkadot. And we all hear those names. Great, but it's kind of like the top 10 blue chip, you know, uh, the, the the heavy market cap type of tokens and coins. He has them potentially. It's not a given, but he definitely also is in the tail of distribution. So there's other things happening there. The entire space we know is correlated, but it's not perfectly correlated with one. Sometimes, you know, some of these smaller tokens completely decouple and they do other things and they, you know, start to go up or zig when others sack. And that can potentially be very valuable. Yeah, really interesting stuff. I, I personally really enjoyed this interview uh, when we watched it ahead of the show. Really great stuff. Uh, so I just wanted to give some key takeaways here from this conversation. Uh, so we heard what value investing is and how the age-old uh, philosophy associated with legendary equity investors, uh, Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett, can be adopted into the crypto space. Uh, Kai Wu described his view of crypto-specific value investing uh, and described his portfolio weightings. Kai also shared his views on the importance of diversification given the volatility and newness of this space. Moritz, with all that said, it looks like we've got some questions from the viewers. Want to take a couple of those? Sure, absolutely. Sounds like a good idea. Great. So this first one comes to us uh, from Jonathan from the Real Vision site. And the question is, any news and updates about ETH 2.0 final testing coming into place from 6th of August? Well, don't ask me personally. I know as much as anybody. I know that um, the proposed date of the merge is the 19th of September. Um, so that is another six weeks to go or seven, six and a half weeks to go, something like that. Um, so then it'll go to mainnet. Odds are this will happen, you know, but I'm, you know, I really do not know. Let's say it has a relatively high probability of happening. Um, the question is, what of that is reflected in the price today? And that is the difficult question to answer. We're about 1500, 1600, I think right now in Ethereum. I speak to a lot of people, they tell me, you know, it should be going up and, you know, go to, uh, to, to make new highs. The last high was 4,700. I'm not so sure about that. So really, let's see what happens around the 19th, um, whether there really is this strong tailwind, that strong impetus that will drive Ethereum higher from there. Um, 
I'm as surprised and as excited as anybody listening here. Well, Moritz, you perfectly anticipated our final question uh, from Joiner on the Real Vision site. Can you please tell us if the bottom is in or there'll be new lows coming this month? So really easy question, Moritz. Just predict the price. Uh, of Thank you. <laughs> he goes on to add, IE, will macro affect the crypto markets despite recent deleveraging? Well, I do hope that the bottom is in. Uh, we've heard a couple of people say it is in. Sam Bankman Fried said it. I think Raul, you know, came across very bullish. That's fine. You know, clearly in the July has been a super bullish month. You know, Ethereum has made 60%. I mean, that's that's quite a rally, right? As, as we've said at the beginning of the show. Um, whether the bottom is in, I don't know. I think maybe today we're going lower a little. Nancy Pelosi is supposed to land in Taiwan. That's kind of like a risk-off event. If that really happens, who knows? Um, if interest rates move lower because we have recession kicking in, um, if the NASDAQ rallies, ifs and ifs and ifs, if this becomes more of a risk-on environment, then yeah, I fully expect cryptos uh, to follow along with a successful merge of um, in Ethereum on the 19th, yeah, maybe we can easily go through 2,000, 2,500. Odds are, I mean, going out Olympia, I think odds are more that we move a little bit higher from here, take a breather, uh, then we'll see where it goes. But uh, I think that, um, that trend to the top side still has some, some legs to run on. More, it's always insightful. A pleasure to do this with you once again. Thank you, Ash. That's it for today's show. You can keep the conversation going in the comment section on the exchange or in our pro crypto discord server see you tomorrow live on real vision crypto daily briefing